This is the One Soldier Podcast, episode 25, with me, Russell Hillier. You wake up, you get a shower, you drink your coffee, you start scrolling through your social media feed, and that's when things get weird. There's these posts and activity that a thousand American veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan have landed on the border. They're armed with sophisticated military equipment. They're trained. They've killed. They've come to take Canada hostage. It's come out of nowhere, and you don't believe it. It's not registering. But media websites and the radio, well, they're saying the same thing. It's real. It is happening. And not only that, but there are rumors of more imminent invasion points across the entire country. And you don't know what to do. Would you carry on as normal? Your daily routines? Would you go to work that day? Would you send your kids to school that day? Real questions for a lot of unknowns. And that's the kind of scenario that we're going to be getting into and talking about today. Because if you lived in Canada in 1866 instead of 2021, this is what you would have woken up to. This is what you would have been faced with. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author and historian Christopher Klein to talk about his book, When the Irish Invaded Canada. And it all starts in the year 1866, when Irish veterans of the American Civil War launched a series of raids into Canada with the goal of holding the country hostage in exchange for political freedom in their home country of Ireland. The most notable of these battles occurred at Ridgeway in Ontario, where Canadian forces were routed from the field of battle. Christopher Klein joined me from his home near Boston to talk about his book and the Fenian invasions. Our conversation starts now. All right, yeah. Love the background. It's an impressive collection. Yeah, I maybe read one or two of them, I think, too. (laughs) Half of them are... Nicely done. Half of mine, thanks. Well, we'll we'll just get started if, uh, if you're good to go. Yeah, sure. Just for the listeners at home, I've got Christopher Klein with me right now. And uh, you're, you're beaming in from America, right? South of the border. Yep. Right Sweet. outside Boston area. Okay, awesome. So, Christopher Klein, you the reason that I wanted to talk to you today is because you have a relatively recent book about the Fenian invasions of Canada. Actually, one of the first episodes I did on this podcast a couple of years ago was with a guy named, uh, well, an author named Peter Vronsky. Mm-hmm. And I know that you have talked to him because he's in the, I think the, the preface of your book. And, and of course he wrote a book about the Battle of Ridgeway. We had a great discussion. And so when I, I saw that you had your own book, much more recent, I knew I had to get you on the show. So uh, thanks again for making oh, the time. That's great. Appreciate yeah. A lot of, uh, a lot of Canadians, I don't think are really aware of what the Fenian invasions are all about. And uh, what, one of the reasons for that is we don't really teach it in Canada. I mean, I'm, I'm a history teacher or a social studies teacher and uh, the Fenians get about like this much room in the textbook. And it, it's usually accompanied by that, um, you know, iconic uh, lithograph of the, the green Fenian line right. uh, chasing away the, the routed Canadian forces in their British tunics. Yep. Uh, and so that's really all we get about the Fenians, uh, you know, in, I guess you could say, mainstream education but could you give like a little bit of background about who the Fenians were and what they're all about before we get too far down this road 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and in Canada, at least you may get a paragraph, we get absolutely none of it uh, here in the United States. And this was something I had not even heard about until I just stumbled across, uh, I was doing research and talking about someone from that time period who was a veteran of the attack on Canada. And I did a double take and I was like, what, what in the world is this? And then sort of delved into the story that gets completely lost here in the United States, gets right in the aftermath of the, of the Civil War. Um, but the Fenian raids were carried out by members of a group that was called the, the Fenian Brotherhood. And their members were mostly um, refugees from the Great Hunger in Ireland. So these were men living in Ireland, uh, which of course had been under British rule for about seven centuries at that time. And for seven centuries, the British were trying to recast the Irish in their own image. Um, un unsuccessfully. And the Irish basically had banded together to preserve their language, their, their customs, their religion. And then when the potato crop failed in 1845, there's Irish who think that the British are trying to exterminate them altogether as well. And a million of them, uh, more than a million of them are going to end up uh, fleeing to Canada and, and the United States. And they they never really let go of their love of, of their homeland, even after living in the United States for uh, a couple decades. Many of these Irish end up fighting in the American Civil War. Uh, about 200,000 uh, native-born Irish fight in the American Civil War. It's just a, a massive number. But then even after fighting in the Civil War and you know many of them wounded in battle, um, they still had their goal of trying to liberate Ireland. And the goal of the Fenian Brotherhood was that this organization in the United States would, with the freedoms that America provided, be able to raise money, purchase weapons, and uh, cast off British rule in Ireland. And their intention after they formed the organization the whole time was they were going to have a revolution in Ireland that had been tried every generation or so. Uh, but when the British cracked down on uh, their sister organization in Ireland, the Irish Republican Brotherhood in 1865, uh, the plan sort of evolved here in, among the Fenians in, in the United States. And they decided that why try to hit the British an ocean away when they could just get on a train and overnight be on British territory in, in Canada. And that um, so their intention is invade Canada. Uh, some of the more radical members of the Fenians expected that they would basically just be, that taking Canada would be a mere matter of marching like Thomas Jefferson wrote about the yeah. War of 1812 um, and expected that they would get the support of all the Irish in Canada and the French speakers as well. So they thought they'd be able to hold maybe Canada hostage and ransom it for Ireland's independence from the British. Uh, but probably the most realistic thing that they're trying to do here is to spark a war between the United, uh, the United States and Great Britain. And in helping the United States take over Canada, then the United States would lay pressure on the British to free Ireland. So the whole goal is to free Ireland here in this whole uh, episode. Yeah. You know, on its face, it sort of seems like a crazy scheme that uh, they're, they were going to hold Canada hostage. I was trying to think back to history, if if there's any other examples where you know, basically political, a political mission was undertaken by, by way of holding a country hostage. Mm -hmm. And I, I couldn't come up with anything. Yeah. And, and like I said, I think, you know, that was probably the dreams for some of the most radical 
themes here, but I think they're, I mean, it seems to us absolutely completely absurd, you know, in the time that we live in where the two countries share this longest peaceful international border. But in the first hundred years of American history, the idea of invading Canada is as patriotic as fireworks on the 4th of July. I mean, there's even before the Declaration of Independence is signed, the first place the Continental Army goes is due north to, to Canada. And of course, during the War of 1812, and there was just such animosity towards the British in the aftermath of the Civil War, both in terms of Confederate warships being built uh, in British ports and also as Canada was sort of this uh, refuge for the uh, Confederate Secret Service that launched raids on banks in St. Albans, Vermont, and plotted the firebombing of theaters in uh, New York and was thought to possibly be involved in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln that all these things are wrapped up in this story at the time that it's not as far out of the realm of possibility in terms of, you know, there have been talk about this war between the United States and Great Britain and then um, if, if they had their aims aligned that something could happen here. I mean, there's, I mean, one of the most interesting things I found in doing the research here is that during this time period, there's a bill that's introduced in the Congress that basically lays out where the four new states from Canada are going to be to be the next part of the United States and where the 29 new representatives were going to come. And then there was a senator from Michigan who had this idea as a way to unite the, reunite the United States after the end of the Civil War was they would put together a 200,000 man army with half the men from the North, half the men from the South. They would invade Canada and they were going to, in essence, hold it, occupy it until the British paid reparations for the damage caused by the Confederate warships that were paid in their ports. So, I mean, it's crazy, but it's also being talked about at the highest levels of the American government too at the time. Yeah. And that's fascinating because uh, that that's something that Canadians have no idea about and, and I didn't either. So that's a, a cool little wrinkle of history. Just out of curiosity, where do, do you know offhand where those uh, new states would come from? Like, would it be like just take Quebec and Ontario and New Brunswick and just create them into states? I think it was, and I think maybe Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia may have been the may have been the fourth one uh, out of those. Uh, uh, but yeah, definitely those. I think first three were included in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, it it might be a great way to uh, reunite the country after the war. Uh, find an external enemy. It kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. It's interesting what you said about how the Fenian invasions in America, you know, I said in Canada, we get this much room in the textbook and in America, there's nothing because it is overshadowed by this epic event of the Civil War. For for Canadian uh, history enthusiasts, and even more specifically for Civil War buffs, we don't have a Civil War, we don't have Gettysburg or, you know, Grant versus Lee. So the Fenians are really the only thing we've got for this time period in terms of military history. So I, th- I think that's why maybe we, we get a little bit more play with it up in Canada, um, just because it is, you know, right. I mean, purposes, it, the only thing we've got. Yeah. And it also leads right into Confederation. Right. So, I mean, it's sort of I can sort of see it akin to these episodes in the 1770s that lead up to the American Revolution. So an event like the Boston Tea Party. OK, you know, it's not necessarily a huge event in history, but it's it becomes one because it's this part of this timeline that, that leads to the American revolution. So I think, you know, that's, 
you have that timeline there where it's tied into confederation here is completely lost between the aftermath of the civil war and then reconstruction so i mean it doesn't really fit into any of the you know the overarching the history of where the country's yeah i mean it's not something that echoes to today like those two events do you know and and it it didn't ultimately change necessarily any aspects of American history like it does for Canadian history. Yeah, well, that, that makes a lot of sense. With hindsight being what it is, it's really easy for us in the, you know, the year 2021 to look back at the Fenian invasions of Canada and sort of, you know, shrug it off and laugh it off as well, this thing that was ultimately destined to fail. But I, I was just thinking about the other day, what would this look like in our, our current world if, um, let's say seven, 800 American veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan suddenly landed on the border of Canada and they're armed to the teeth with sophisticated weaponry. It, it would be no laughing matter, would it? No. And I think that's what's important when we're talking about history also is to try to some ways transport us back or as you're sort of doing, trying to think of a modern day equivalent and how the reaction would be. And, you know, um, you know, I think writing the book, just trying to put yourself in the mind of Canadians who are living right along the border. And for, you know, the course of five years, you have this threat of, in, you know, invaders coming from the South. And, you know, if we we're going to put into a more modern day parlance, you would say that the Fenians who invaded Canada were, they were radicalized by their experiences living under the British. Um, you know, they had seen, uh, as I said, the British trying to take away their culture, language and religion. And now the food crops are failing and food still being exported to Britain, but they don't have anything to eat. They have to flee their homeland. So you see where those, where the motivations are coming from, um, from from the Fenian side, but then also trying to put yourself in that perspective of, you know, just the threat that you must have been living with at the border, just in terms of, you know, you know, the invasions happen five times. There's always a threat of another invasion that's happening. How, you know, I, I think one of the powerful moments in, you know, and Peter probably talked about this about Ridgeway too, is you know, there's a number of University of Toronto students who die in the Battle of Ridgeway. And to think about, you know, what would the reaction be if you had, you know, college students who were basically killed by, you know, who you, people would nowadays maybe consider terrorists coming above or, or across the border. And it does, I think, put things in a different light of, of how we sort of look back at, at things. But I think that's the importance of history is to try to um, to make those connections between the the humanity of the past and 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 our present as well. Yeah, and you you raise an interesting point about you use the word terrorism. Uh, you, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you look at the historical documents, uh, the word terrorism probably isn't used. But it, I mean, it, it sure as heck would be used today if if the same thing happened. Yeah, I mean, you you know you you go to political terrorism radicalization though those are the words that you would be using today right. to right to... so uh maybe we can get into uh ridgeway a little bit later but could you could you fill us in on the other fenian raids because ridgeway was was but just one and there was there was several others 
it's it's the first and it's the it's the biggest and it's the most noteworthy. So that's in in June of eighteen sixty six. Um, so the Fenian Brotherhood, as I mentioned, sort of its original goal. It, it's founded in the United States in eighteen fifty eight uh, by a man named John O'Mahony, who was a uh, had born, raised in Ireland, had been a member of the failed Young Ireland Rebellion in eighteen forty eight. And he starts the Fenian Brotherhood in the United States, the sister organization, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, uh, founded in Dublin in 1858 by James Stevens, another veteran of the, of the Young Ireland Movement. So these men are trying to keep alive the revolutionary spirit and have this next revolution in Ireland. And by 1866, when there's starting to be the split inside the Fenian Brotherhood, John O'Mahony had always wanted to stick with the original plan of having the revolution in Ireland. He can see basically his power starting to slip away. He agrees that they could do a small invasion in April of 1866 of um, Campobello Island, uh, right off the coast of Maine and, and New Brunswick. His idea is that they could take Campbell Island and maybe use this now as a base of operations to launch an attack overseas or to launch privateers to disrupt British sailing. It's a real half-hearted effort. And so he, basically, he's basically just sort of trying to compromise with his more radical elements. Exactly. He's just trying to do anything to keep the money flowing into his because he is... This idea of attacking Canada by April of 1866 is definitely the idea that's in the ascendancy, and that's the more powerful wing of the organization. He sees this as maybe just one possible way he can just try to hold on to power as to sort of give a nod to the idea of invading Canada, but not really doing it right. um, full time. So uh, the men leave on trains from New York. They send a boat that's launched with weapons. Then Omani has second thoughts, brings the boat back. So the men show up in at, in Eastport, Maine and have no weapons. And basically they, they loiter around for a couple of weeks. Um, they do launch a nighttime raid on one of the islands. They burn down a building that happens to be owned by an American and take uh, Union Jack off the custom house, bring it back to New York. And that was the full extent of it. And basically John Amani then had to resign in disgrace. And that, that was the end of, of uh, really his real involvement with, with the Fenian Brotherhood, although he'll, he'll come back later. Uh, but it's this group that that um, wants to attack Canada that's now firmly in the ascendancy. Um, they are uh, they have General Thomas William Sweeney who develops their war plan, a five pronged war plan of invading Canada in in June, and then from that is what ends up becoming the the invasion of Ridgeway, um, at least the Battle of Ridgeway. Um, one other prong of that uh, at the same time that there's that crossing of the Niagara River into Ontario is a couple of days after the Battle of Ridgeway, there's another group that goes in from just north of St. Albans, Vermont, a small town called Franklin, and goes into southern Quebec. Um, and basically, um, the, the Canadian Defense Forces had pulled back about 10 miles from the border in the aftermath of Ridgeway. Um, the whole plan here, uh, when Thomas Sweeney developed it was that invasion from um, Buffalo into Ontario, that was all going to be a feint. And his whole plan was to have like a 17,000 man army go right up through the Lake Champlain Valley. Well, this, the, the unit ends up crossing from Vermont into Quebec, it's about eight, 800 men or so. Um, but with no defense forces, they basically just have free reign over 
um, a couple towns in southern Quebec and the eastern townships for about 48 hours. And then once the Canadian Defense Forces are coming, they basically beat it right back to the American side. Um, and that's the end of, of what happens in, in 1866. Uh, by 1870, uh, John O'Neill, who had been the general at the Battle of Ridgeway, has now become the president of the Fenian Brotherhood. And he, uh, he will never let go of this idea of invading Canada. So in 1870, he launches another attack on Canada, unbelievably to me, down the same exact road from Vermont into Quebec that uh, was done in 1866. And this road into Quebec is right underneath um, Eccles Hill. So unbeknownst to them, there's all these um, uh, home guards, uh, dozens of them up on Eccles Hill behind rocks, just watching this whole scene down on this dairy farm owned by a man named Albert Richard, who has now had the bad luck of twice having his farm become a battlefield. And as soon as the Fenians cross in, um, the home guards will open fire. And the Battle of Echo Hills takes place on Albert Richard's farmhouse. And he is getting his farmhouse basically shot up with uh, bullet holes. He's got armies now tramping through his uh, house, tracking mud everywhere. Uh, but there's, uh, there's a couple fatalities on, on the Fenian side. And the battle only lasts a few hours. And John O'Neill suffers the ultimate indignity of actually being arrested on the battlefield by a United States Marshal. This is on the, on the Vermont side. Um, so it's a complete fiasco. Uh, the next day, there'll be another incursion from Northern New York into, uh, into Southern Quebec. So from outside Malone, New York, uh, there, uh, the Fenians cross in a few hundred yards into Canadian territory uh, the next morning, there's another shootout uh, in what's called the Battle of Trout River. Uh, but the arrival of the Canadian Defense Forces basically pushed the Fenians back into American territory. So this whole 1870 invasion is a it's a complete and utter disaster. And John O'Neill is arrested. He stands trial, uh, and he is ultimately put in prison in in Vermont for his role in. Um, in doing this because a private citizen is conducting war against a country with, with the United States at peace is a violation of, of federal law. So that's, that's where the, the, the legal aspect of all this comes into. John O'Neill gets a pardon from President Ulysses S. Grant under the condition that he will never again invade Canada. And he f freely agrees to this. Yeah. And I don't know if he actually believed it or not. I don't think he did. But by October of 1871, he's back at it again. And this time the Fenian Brotherhood is not, he's no longer the president. The Fenian Brotherhood wants nothing to do with his plan of invading Canada again. So he sort of goes rogue and um, he gets a group of about three dozen uh, Irishmen from Minnesota and he launches an invasion from North Dakota into, uh, into Manitoba. And the whole idea is he, he aligns himself with another Irishman who had an, a former alliance with the Matee population there. So again, the expectation that they're having is, all right, as soon as we get into Manitoba, we're going to get all the support of Louis Riel and the, and the Matee. And of course, again, does not happen. And the, the most 
farcical moment of the book is that, so John O'Neill and the Fenians cross into, uh, across the border, they take a custom, Canadian customs house, they take a, a house owned by the Hudson's Bay Company. And then after a few hours, all of a sudden they see United States cavalry coming to them and the cavalry places all of them under arrest and John O'Neill cannot understand how cavalry was able to cross into the Canadian border. Well, unbeknownst to John O'Neill, he had seen a map that showed that the Custom House and Hudson Bay Company was a quarter mile north of the border. What he didn't know is that the border had been resurveyed in the interim. And now the, the territory he was in was actually three quarters of a mile south of where the border actually was. So John O'Neill never actually invaded Canada because technically he never invaded, <laughs> he never left American soil. And that's why he was able to be, to be arrested. So um, that was sort of the, the ignominious uh, end for the, uh, the Fenian raids. And John O'Neill will then go on to start these colonies of Irish Americans out in Nebraska. And I'm fully convinced that he was probably using that as a place away from prying eyes to actually try something again at, at some point. But then he ends up passing away, I think it's 1876 before he can. But I don't think he ever let go of this idea of, of invading Canada. Yeah, it sounds like he was a true revolutionary at heart. Yeah, yeah. The kind of guy who uh, in the current era, he'd have the NSA and CSIS uh, all over him, tracking his movements. Yep. And I think it's it's important to note his background too. So he... Um, he's a descendant of great Irish uh, revolutionaries like Hugh O'Neill and Owen Roe O'Neill, who uh, stood up to Queen Elizabeth I, fought British forces. And this, this is sort of the underlying thing with, with everything in the book is John O'Neill knows that the odds are long against them, but the odds are always long against the Irish and anything that they had tried against the British. But he also knew that just by fighting the British, you would become a hero in Irish eyes. So success was not necessarily a determinant of whether you were remembered in Irish history. It was that you dare to fight the British. And this sort of underlies, I think, a lot of the Fenian attitude here is that the odds are definitely going to be long for them to succeed in any venture here in Canada. Um, but they figured they just need to be successful some point in the 700 year history. And that if they can keep at least the revolutionary spirit alive, it could pass down to another generation that might ultimately be successful. And that's what's going to happen. I mean, they, they keep that revolutionary torch from the young Ireland group of 1848. They pass it along to the 1916 generation that's ultimately successful with the Easter rising in part because of the money and weapons that are sent to them from um, Irish nationalists in the United States. Right. So e even though the Fenians weren't successful in Canada, it's, it's the, the infrastructure that they built up with sending money back home to Ireland would ultimately pay off. Yeah. So the, when they form in 1858, it's really this, this first transatlantic revolutionary organization that's ever been founded. So, it, you know, it's a, this, this is a different model where, they're going to try to put the man, the army together in Ireland, and they're going to try to fund it and uh, arm it from the United States. You know, at a point now where 
transatlantic crossings are at least you know matters of days and not weeks so it's a little bit more possible for that to to be done and then once you finally have transatlantic cables and communication going on um you know that that speeds up that up and makes this transatlantic revolution organization much more effective by the time of 1916. yeah so so far with john o'neill and the fenians we've got like three four maybe five uh debacles then we've got ridgeway though where they actually pull it off and uh and they score they score a goal they get a victory at ridgeway first of all it's really interesting to me how you have this force of let's say you know 800 1000 men and they're composed of veterans from both the northern side of the civil war and the southern side seems really really interesting or even odd that they would be able to work together mere months after the civil war i mean there's there's probably a good chance that some of these guys were on the field of battle shooting against each other in the previous years uh and yet they they come together that's interesting to me yeah and uh, it, it was to, to me as well. And you have actually some of these men still wearing their uniforms from, from the Civil War as well. And I never came across any, anything that said that there were you know, high tensions among, uh, among those who were fighting at, at Ridgeway because of the different sides they were on. And I think partly it's because of the, the, they sort of had more of the common Irish experience in the Civil War. So for the Irish, as I said, um, a scholar named Damien Shields has done a lot of research on this, and, and he estimates about 200,000 Irish fight in the, in the Civil War, about 180,000 for the Union, 20,000 for the Confederacy. And where you were fighting, the, the side you were fighting on really was just a matter of geography. It was, it was basically which port did you come into um, when you fled Ireland to come to the United States. So most of those uh, Irish who were fighting in the Confederacy, you know, they settled in New Orleans or, or, or Mobile, those, those sort of port cities. And the Irish who are enlisting really aren't doing it over slavery. Um, and certainly for the Irish who are fighting for the Union, um, they're not that interested in emancipation because it just means more competition for jobs they don't necessarily have. They're enlisting mainly because they need a paycheck. They're still at the bottom rung of the economic ladder, and that's why they're joining in so many numbers. So you have, when the Civil War starts, you know, most men who enlisted didn't expect the, the war to last a year, let alone four years. You know, they figured, all right, I'll sign up, three months, I get a paycheck, there's a chance I might get killed, but, you know, we don't really expect this to be much, uh, much of a war. And then of course the war becomes a lot more prolonged and deadly than anyone thought it would. And it's gonna be the Irish who are dying in tremendous numbers uh, in, in the first, certainly in the first two years of the war. Right. So there are stories of actually during the war um, in winter camps uh, in Virginia that if the Fenian Brotherhood recruiter came one night to where the army of the potomac was the irishmen from the army of potomac went out into the woods to have a meeting with this Fe uh, the, this fenian recruiter and then from the other side came irish from the confederate forces basically just laid down their arms 
heard about what was going on with the war that they really wanted to fight, which was going to be one that, that liberated Canada. So a lot of these, the diehard Fenians who enlisted thought that the Civil War would be a training ground for that war that they really wanted to fight. So they'd, weren't, they'd learn weaponry tactics, they'd learn battlefield strategies and then take that knowledge. So in essence, yeah, you've got men who are fighting on both sides here, but they have oddly sort of this common purpose where they're just seeing this as, as training for the battle. larger, in, the way, larger. In, in, in a way that invasion is the one that they want to fight. Yeah. Yeah. So, so nothing personal. <laughs> yeah. No, no. You, you can imagine though. I mean, uh, the, the, the soldier campfires with uh, John O'Neill and Ridgeway, like having men on both sides. I mean, there, there must've been some, uh, some chirping and uh, some back and forth about, um, you know, the various battles and sides of the war. Um, but yeah, it's interesting how they were able to set that rivalry aside and sort of mm-hmm. just pursue the, the bigger picture, I guess you could say. Yeah. But it, I mean, and th- these were guys who knew how to fight. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like the, the veterans, uh, one of the things, the interesting things about Ridgeway is that you do have these, these veterans of the war and when they come up across the Canadian militia, it's sort of, it's not surprising that they get a win on this one. Yeah. I mean, even though they are outnumbered, I mean, they've got a lot of them have battle experience. So they're used to the, you know, just even the sounds of gunfire and, and bullets sort of whizzing by and, and, and just the whole battlefield experience, which is something that was not, you know, for the men on the other side had been, and boys on the other side um, did not have that experience. And so because, you know, they were outnumbered, but that, that advantage that they had in the experience, I think probably is the decisive, you know, factor here when it comes to them. Ending up yeah, winning for sure. What, one thing that uh, Peter mentioned in his discussion with me is uh, that, and I don't think there's any proof of this, but it's, it's mere speculation that he was saying that he thought that the Fenians were sort of pulling their, their shots in, in the battle because they routed the Canadian forces. And though the casualties were heavy by Canadian standards, by civil war standards, they weren't, you know, that great. So he, he was sort of theorizing that the Fenians were, were sort of going easy on the Canadians a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, and then the, the narrative of the battle is that, you know, the, the Fenians were sort of getting pushed back in the early parts of the uh, battle. Just, um, they they uh, didn't have the, the the same weaponry necessarily, and and uh, but they were able to to fall back and then all of a sudden make this charge that completely turns the tide of the battle. Um, but they were definitely able to do things with an experienced force that they knew the Canadians were not going to be able to, uh, to do in there. So um, yeah. and and just yeah, the psychological I mean, I edge alone too. Yeah, yeah. I mean having. And, and I think it's what you get when you start getting these accounts then, particularly when, when you get them from like the, the university students, you know, who uh, once the tide of the battle turns and then they're, they're, they're retreating and then, you know, they just describe seeing one of their friends basically getting shot on the battlefield and just dropping right there. And just the psychological shock of that experiencing that for the first time whereas you know four years of civil war you know the united states had basically seen it all even if you weren't 
um, fighting. And there were some Fenians there who, you know, weren't Civil War veterans, but the whole country had seen the photographs and read about the horror and lived war for, for four years. I mean, that was part of the American psyche at, at, at that point and would be carried among the Fenians. Yeah. Every every armchair historian in general likes to ask like the what if questions. Do you think the Fenians could have pulled this off? Like, was there any chance or was this destined to fail right from the beginning? I think it was destined to fail from the beginning. I mean, they made a lot of assumptions that, again, sort of fall in the line of American military history. But the underlying assumption is that once they cross into Canada, they're going to get the support of the all the Irish Canadians. Uh, they're going to get the support of the French-speaking population in Quebec. And, you know, when the Fenians invade, you know, for the Battle Ridge, they, they cross with their weapons. They're not crossing with any commissary. They don't have any food or supplies. They just expect that they're going to get, you know, friendly people on the other side of the border who are going to supply them with everything that, that they need. Um, so very big assumptions that were baked into the, into this war plan that they're going to get a lot of native uh, support for for what they're going to do they're going to be greeted as liberators you know rather than man invaders uh, this sort of age-old uh, trope in american military history so i mean that was just a real inflated assumption and then they overestimated what support they're going to get among the Irish Americans in the United States too. They, they, um, the, the plan starts to fall apart really, even before it starts, even before the Battle of Ridgeway. Cause as I mentioned, Sweeney has this five pronged invasion that he's planning. Well, they get to Detroit and they can't find any boat Chicago. They don't have any of the men, the commander doesn't show up in Cleveland. So Sweeney basically is improvising and sends everyone that he can find into Buffalo just to get across the border because he figures once he shows everyone that they're serious about invading Canada, then they're going to get tens of thousands of, of Fenians coming from behind them. Um, and, and a lot do show up in Buffalo, but the United States government cuts them off. I mean, that's maybe the one big what if moment is what if the United States government didn't intervene and let all these Fenians that were gathering in Buffalo in the days after Ridgeway into Ontario. How, how different would that have looked? Um, but because yeah, it, it seems like they were sort of, in some ways, the American authorities were turning a blind eye. Oh, they totally were because they, they weren't against the, again, I mean, America sort of looking, casting its eyes North for some territory. So they're not, uh, adverse to to the Fenians for that purpose and also for trying to pressure the British to pay up these millions of dollars in reparations that, that they're looking. So the, the, the Johnson administration definitely sort of giving its tacit nod for them to get in there. But after a few days, they've got to keep some semblance of American law and they, they, they will cut the supply lines. Um, so really the only, I think the only realistic option that the Fiends really have here was to do something that was going to spark the American government getting in and, and backing them. I mean, I think that's really the only realistic odds that they would have to actually gaining their, their true goal of, of Irish independence out of this whole. Yeah. Yeah. Raid. Maybe, maybe like do a raid in Canada and, and hope that the, 
the British follow you back onto the other side of the border, provoke an incident? That and also so the there's a possibility in the aftermath of Ridgeway also because you have a few dozen uh, Fenians who were captured, who are then court-martialed in uh, Toronto and I think in Montreal as well. Uh, and they were then going to be executed and including one Catholic priest. And it's the British who start really laying the pressure, diplomatic pressure then um, on the Canadian authorities to not do this, do not make martyrs out of these men. And if they did, then maybe that changes it too. And, and that sparks because the American government is very insistent also that you know these you know, men should not be executed, they should come back to America. It's a lesson that ironically the British do not learn from in 1916, because they go ahead and they, they execute the leaders of the Easter Rising, create the martyrs in that situation, and, and um, which plays a huge role into eventual war for independence. So it's a lesson that the British do not learn from, from the Fenian raids. Yeah, yeah, really good point. And it flies in the face of how we treat terrorists today. You get charged with terrorism on either side of the border and you're, you're going away for a long time. Yeah, I mean, there's also this interesting story that's tied into this too about the whole concept of citizenship. So um, this will come into play that a lot of Americans will then, as I mentioned, the original idea is to have this invasion a revolution in Ireland. Uh, there is still a group of hardcores who stick to that plan and then Americans who then participate in a failed uh, uprising in Ireland in 1867. Um, where again, the, the British arrest them. But in British eyes, these men, because they were born in Ireland, which was British territory at the time, uh, are forever British, cannot renounce citizenship. And it becomes a big diplomatic um, row between the United States and Great Britain. And basically this whole concept of being able to renounce your citizenship gets established into international law after that. So this is sort of an undercurrent that's uh, in all these diplomatic negotiations, too, about are the Fenians actually British citizens or are they American citizens? Right. Yeah. What happened to those guys? Were they executed? They were not. Okay. No. No. So they were. They, they did stand court martial, but the American diplomatic pressure they did. So no executions uh, really come out of the Fenian raids. Right. There's a statue um, dedicated to Ridgeway. Uh, behind Queen's Park, which is the, the legislative buildings in Ontario. And uh, I, I went to school at uh, University of Toronto for a while. So, you know, my path would take me through the, the Queen's Park grounds and tucked away behind this like overgrown shrub, shrubbery and trees is this uh, big monument uh, to Ridgeway. And the thing is totally like just fallen into disrepair. Like it's weathered, you know, the, the face on the statues are almost unrecognizable there's limbs of the statues that have like fallen off and just decayed over time so total state of disrepair uh and the ironic part is is that and i'm going to paraphrase this but there's an inscription barely legible that something along the lines of these men will not be forgotten and mm -hmm. they they 100 have been forgotten <laughs> is there any uh is there any monuments on the american side to this historical event there are a few historical markers uh, that have been placed in, there's one in Vermont that's about, it's actually like 10 miles south of the border. So it's not actually anywhere near where the Battle of Eccles Hill occurred in 1870. It's more along the 
most trafficked highway they could find that, that comes near the border. Uh, there is an, a historic marker that's actually just recently been, been erected in uh, upstate New York, uh, north of Malone, to commemorate that Battle of Trout River in 1870. I think it's just been, uh, been erected in the last uh, year or two. Uh, so there are, are some of those historical markers, but there is no, no, nothing akin to that here where there, the statues have been erected to the, to the Fenian leaders. Um, in a way it's been the, the, the Fenian markers really became the, the grave sites of, of these men and sort of, I think sort of ties into maybe Irish, Irish tradition as well. So um, the gravestone for John O'Neill, uh, who was buried in Omaha, Nebraska, would sort of be a place that um, you would lay a wreath at to commemorate, you know, the Fenian invasions. And I, I, I closed the book with Eamon de Valera, who was really the foremost Irish Republican in the 20th century, one of the key revolutionary figures, along with, with Michael Collins. Uh, I, I end the book with him laying a wreath on the grave of John O'Neill and was sort of seen as a, a part of a, a pilgrimage for him to make. And he, he does it to sort of acknowledge, as I had talked about before, sort of this connection between the Fenian Brotherhood and his generation that's trying to cast off the British rule uh, in Ireland. And that's pretty, I mean, you have in, in a lot of the, uh, some of the Fenian leaders, their bodies are actually brought back to Ireland. They're, bar they're buried in Glasnevin Cemetery in this one plot of land that is, um, in a way, it's an amazing plot of, of history with all these great Irish uh, revolutionaries buried in this, in such close proximity. So it really became the graves of some of these uh, men in the cities around, um, New England and New York Calvary Cemetery in, in Queens and New York is a big site. So those would be the places that the Fenians would maybe gather to try to pay honor and, and remember uh, the men who carried out the invasions. Right, right. The book is called When the Irish Invaded Canada. Christopher Klein, I think we'll end it off there. So I just want to say First of all, we just, I feel like we just sort of scratched the surface of this topic like we always do on this show. Thanks a lot for joining. Thank you. Appreciate it, Russell. And that concludes my discussion with Christopher Klein, author of When the Irish Invaded Canada. Like I said earlier, I'm going to post a link to that book on the website for you to check out. I think one of the big takeaways from the Fenian invasions is that it's incredibly easy to look back at the failures of history and conclude that they weren't important and they were destined to, to fail in, in that way. But put yourself there. Imagine how you would react. Imagine how your neighbors, your town, your city would react. Imagine the panic and uncertainty if the Fenian invasions happened or if another invasion happened in your country presently. It becomes a lot more real. It becomes a lot harder to laugh at or shrug off or say it's not important. Okay. If you like the episode and you like what we're doing here, by the way, apologies for the hiatus on new episodes. But if you like what we're doing here, help me out by subscribing or following to the channel. 
I want to do a shout out to Elijah Collins, Wilhelm5831, Logan Fisher for subscribing to the channel. Gentlemen, thank you for your support. Finally, I'm going to end this off by dedicating the episode to the veterans of the Fenian invasions on both sides of the conflict. And I think that's going to be it for today. That's it. That's all. Hopefully see you next time.